Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coalesce on Common Ground. I am really excited to bring this guest forward for you today. His name is Tom Fisher. It is somebody that I have known for years, and I really see him as a pioneer in shaping organizational culture. And we do share a lot of the same mindset on what this looks like to have a really thriving culture inside an organization that also drives significant increases in outcomes, which Tom will share near the end with the outcomes he has seen once he implemented this within his own organization. One thing to know about Tom is He built a workplace culture that emphasizes transparency first, understanding, deeply understanding humans, each other in his organization, and purpose. In this episode, Tom will be shedding light on his innovative methods to nurture an environment where people come first. And every decision in his organization was made with a clear, purpose-driven vision behind it. He shares how he shifted from an authoritarian management style that the organization was used to when he first got hired on, and how he transitioned that over to a values-driven perspective and collaboration approach within his organization. He also reveals his practice of fostering open conversations and how laying out factors behind every decision can lead to a more harmonious workplace even in the face of initial opposition. He'll touch on why he believes that policies and procedures must reflect and uphold the organization's vision and the importance around these policies and procedures. And above all, Tom emphasizes the critical importance of your personal well-being and peace and being a successful leader. At the very end, I ask him what's his number one advice on for somebody looking to create the culture that he has. And he shares with you what he thinks a personal leader has to really create in their own home life or within themselves to be able to do what he has done. So sit back and prepare to be inspired as we journey into the world with Tom Fisher, exploring his strategies for pioneering a workplace culture of transparency and purpose. Get ready to be enlightened, get ready to be inspired, and get ready to have such a joyous time and join me in my interview with Tom Fisher. I do have a question that I was thinking about this morning, and I was trying to think of how did we first meet? Do you know? I absolutely know. Um, I was, um, I had just taken this position uh, as executive director of the North Atlantic States Carpets Training Fund about, about five years ago. So I would say it was probably four to five years ago. Um, I was desperately seeking information regarding ERISA. Uh, because it's the, there was a lot to it. I had resources, but I also, you know, I want to go after stuff and find it myself. So I did a search and I came across a, a one podcast that dealt with ERISA. It happened to be your podcast, which was uh, talking training with the trades. So um, I believe at some point in the podcast, you may have said, he probably said it every podcast about, you know, if anyone had any questions to reach out, et cetera, et cetera. So I reached out probably whatever email address you had provided in the podcast. And you got back to me, which was, I think is unusual uh, in this day and age. And at the end of the day, that's how it started. We, we obviously were like-minded in a lot of areas. And here we are almost five years later uh, as uh, <laughs> friends and colleagues. 
Yeah, that's so good. I remember this now. I could not think of what brought us together. I just remember always having such great conversations with you over and over again. And then I was like, other people should hear from you. And I remember introducing you up some of the conferences I was speaking at. And it's just been always fascinating. So I'm glad you could remember that because I was like, how did I first meet Tom? And it is a domino effect. I'm at Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, I'm flying to Denver and then taking a taxi to Boulder. I'm speaking at a conference for Wednesday. I spoke at this conference uh, a year ago, and uh, the uh, person who uh, coordinates or or organizes the conference had seen me uh, actually in Denver a couple of years ago at the International Benefits Foundation. I had gotten that gig. It's not gig. I don't charge. I just go and do it because it's fun. But uh, I had gotten that gig uh, as a result of a connection that you had made with me. I think it was maybe an article that I had. I don't know. I think you hooked me up with someone to write an article about maybe COVID or whatever. So the you know the the uh, the, the seeds of the stuff I've been doing outside of my job, you know, speaking and whatnot, came from you know you and in our relationship. Yeah, which is amazing. That's something that I love honoring the fact of you never know where relationships will take you, right? And when you see somebody that you deeply respect, and that's one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, because it's like people are fascinating and we all have such great perspectives in this world. And I love sharing those. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Tom, here we go. go. Tell me... Tell me about your position so the audience here can understand what you do, um, who you work with. And if you also want to give, I'm going to call it kind of your audience size, like the people, how many people are you training inside your uh, training fund? So can you give me the background on who you are and what you do? Absolutely can. So, well, I can give you who I have been for the past five years if we start there. Okay. (laughs) Sure. Given my advanced years, uh, I'll be 68 in December, I don't think the audience wants to hear about the past 68 years. So we'll we'll limit it to the past five and maybe delve into (laughs) some stuff that's relevant. But uh, for the past five years, I have been the executive director of the North Atlantic States Carpenters Training Fund. Uh, in simple terms, we're the Carpenters Union, and we are, and I am responsible for making sure that all union carpenters in all six New England states, as well as New York State, minus the five boroughs of New York City, receive the training that is necessary based on OSHA requirements, based on contractor demands, uh, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of numbers, uh, that is, uh, and this is not off the top of my head, we uh, are responsible for 126,241.4 square miles, okay? That's uh, all of New England and all, all of New York State minus New York City. Uh, apprentices, current active apprentices, uh, 2,227, and current active journey-level carpenters, uh, although the number fluctuates monthly, uh, we're at about 22,000 active journey-level carpenters. Um, and responsible for training, responsible for recruitment, responsible for retention, responsible for curriculum development, hiring instructors, training instructors, uh, you know, working to make sure that the curriculum or ensuring that the curriculum is relevant to what's going on in the field, while at the same time meeting the needs of new industries. We're doing a lot of training and solar training. A lot of that's going in uh, upstate New York. Those are areas where the land is affordable and the sun juxtaposition seems to work well uh we're also doing a lot of global wind that we call it gwo training where we're training uh, people to go out to sea a matter of fact last week i think uh was the first uh rig out there to put down two 
of the uh the, the beginning stages of the um of the solar wind project uh, this is a contractor from uh, belgium i believe so we've been working on that for the past two years very specific training so in addition wait to hold on tom you got to break that yeah. so they go out into the ocean and set up like windmills or something what windmills. is this yeah they are they are windmills yes and when i say a windmill um the diameter you know going back to geometry okay uh diameter is all the way across so these windmills uh or at least the base for them the diameter is 36 feet okay oh, wow that's the diameter the steel is approximately uh two inches thick and they had special uh manufacturing facilities uh you know in Europe that are able to make that they then ship it across the ocean put them on a rig uh, the people that are working out there a lot of carpenters uh millwrights come under carpenters um and uh, as do uh, pile drivers so we are responsible for the training that that contractor has required what that training looks like some of the exciting stuff and sometimes we have the third party stuff so they have something called Hewitt training basically it's how to survive uh when a heli if a helicopter crashes into the ocean how to get out so they have these training facilities where they put people in a helicopter fake helicopter mock-up helicopter and uh, dump them into a very large body of water under very controlled circumstances and they train them how to get out of that crash so that's something that was brand new to wow. us obviously we had to contract that out but we had to learn a lot about it also uh there's also a uh, 40-hour training for the offshore training it's a basic training it's 40 hours anybody that works offshore is required to have this training most of it is safety based uh and the folks that go out there i believe they they go out there six weeks uh, at a time and they work seven days a week 12 hours on 12 hours off so it's it's sort of like um you know i mean you get out there and you go to work and you uh you know the, the money is really good this is and and the i believe the initiative is really uh really uh important given the fact that uh you know alternative energy for, uh options are they, they shouldn't be alternatives anymore they should be reality and that's what mm -hmm. they are so uh we're in the early stages of that but this is going to go on for the next 20 years so for me it's you know i'll be able to you know watch some news reports a few years down the road about the, these great initiatives and you know be thankful that i was in there when it first started yeah, that's amazing. I hadn't heard of that. I come from the Midwest because we have well, a right, lot of wind. wind <laughs> there you go. Not a, yes, right. Absolutely. Yeah, we put yeah. ours on land because we've got a right. lot of that. So right. that's fascinating. Well, it's, yeah. Uh, well, there's more wind out in the ocean, I guess. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how this stuff works. But there's, as, as you can imagine, there's a lot to it. It's getting it out there. Then there's the maintenance of it. And there's the security. And then there's cabling uh, that has to then go to land. And uh you know but there's also a lot of um you know there's a lot of situation you know the federal government obviously has been part big part of it a lot of grant opportunities that's something else we're responsible for is writing grants to you know help help offset the cost of training uh so it's everything from an OSHA 10 uh basic OSHA 10 class for a first year apprentice to uh teaching uh seasoned journey level carpenters how to get out of a helicopter that's crashed in the uh in the ocean so that's what every day looks like <laughs> exciting i love the variety so this has got me curious to ask what do you love about your job because you just painted a picture of an expansive impact like an exp 
expansive curriculum, an expansive reach, an expansive amount of people. What do you actually love the most about what you do, Tom? Right. Well, great question. Um, I don't, I've never been officially diagnosed with any sort of, you know, deficit, let's see, ADD, attention deficit disorder. I don't, but a lot of adults, I think a lot of people have it and it's just missed. It's not been diagnosed for my generation. It was just, you know, just keep your mouth shut and, you know, put your head down and start writing on the paper. A lot of that, but, you know, having spent, you know, 20 years, I'll go back back to my uh, previous experiences, public high school teach for 20 years, you know, got to see that the reality of the situation is that attention is something that uh, most people struggle with. Um, I see it every, I see it in restaurants, people sitting across from each other with cell phones, the phone rings, the conversation has ended and they're off on a different tangent. So what I love about the job is I believe that I, uh, I, I have a very difficult time uh, spending time on one item for an extended period of time. I, I'm good for like, 45 minutes and then i need a i need a refresher and that refresher is doing something else it's not taking a walk it's just really like slapping the brain and saying hey let me work on something else right now and then what that does and then 45 minutes later i go on to something else and then when i at the end of the day i come back to the original uh, project that i was working on not only renewed and refreshed but i find that i'm stealing ideas and getting sort of motivations from uh, projects that have nothing to do with the original project that I was working on. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're dealing with a lot of this, the same issues in terms of you know finding out who's going to do the project, what the timeline is, what the resources are, how to make it engaging. So when I the, the beauty of this job is that I never have the opportunity to get stale, because if I were stale, I would not be effective in my job. So that never knowing knowing what the plan is but also knowing that the plan is never going to going to work out the way you think it will and then the awesome rush of okay let's how are we going to figure this out you know that's exciting the next thing i think about is like i brought you on cuz i see you as such a kind and a very intentional leader and the way you're cultivating a vision for your organization, I think, is exceptional. So, so, but my question back to you is, what do you think makes you exceptional? Like, where do you think you shine in your role? And um, sure. am I close? But what's your sure. viewpoint on it? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I appreciate uh, what I would consider a compliment. Uh, the, the best thing that I that I think I do it has to do with creating culture. Um, I've culture is uh, in my brain and my heart and my soul every single day. Uh, I've said this and I continue to say with people that I work with, and I'll always say work with, I'll never say somebody works for me. We are a team. I just happen to be, you know, sitting in this chair at this moment in time. Um, I always, whenever there's an issue, whenever between projects, in other words, someone that's running project A, uh, and someone's running project B and there's sort of conflict that's, that's developing. Uh, the, my conversations are predictable. And this is what I say. Uh, and I start with understand something. Our culture is more important than any project we're working on. Period. Because if you win this argument, okay, you've won the battle, but you're not going to win the war. And by keeping a not just a respectful culture but a culture that forces people in a very in a very uh, um, intentional way 
to put themselves in the shoes of the person they're having conflict with has really helped in moving a lot of our initiatives forward in a way where people then can celebrate the victories of others uh, and support those victories. Uh, not an easy task, uh, but it's something that I am I'm adverse to um, disruptive conflict. Good conflict, I love. Uh, you know, it's 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 really about you know rolling up your sleeves and battling it out as professionals. But when things start to impact uh, the daily routine, uh, and I I think one of my I'm a very good judge of character. I don't know why. I, I really don't know why. It just you know that call it a gift or maybe it's just how I was brought up. Uh, when I can tell that someone is not happy. Um, I would say 99% of the time I can tell that, not 100% of the time. But um, uh, there's, I sense that and uh, take advantage of that opportunity to figure out what's, what's off and then work on that in a manner that is not just productive to the individual, but is productive to the entire organization. Uh, sometimes that's conversations with individuals. Many times it's bringing those individuals together. But ultimately, at the end of the day, my job, and I enjoy it, and, and I, uh, I think I do it well, is to use transparency to explain why decisions are being made, even if the individual I'm talking to is diametrically opposed to that decision. Usually, when the doors are open, wide open, and all the factors are laid out, People then can understand why a decision is being made, whatever that decision may be. I, I mean, we could, we could talk about 20 different things, but at the end of the day, um, being open, honest, transparent, uh, personal, uh, caring about other people, not just the work family, but their, their personal lives, where they are, um, understanding it, not just understanding it, but, but also making accommodations uh, that would help that person be uh, more productive, but also happier. Uh, and that runs the gamut from something simple as if, listen, I need to work remotely on Fridays because of a, a daycare issue to, um, you know, the more difficult conversations which have taken place, which are, you're, you know, you're definitely not happy uh, with the direction we're going in here. I can see, I can see, you know, the, the, uh, the, the vision and the mission are not exciting you. Uh, we've been working together for a couple of years now, and I believe what's going to make you happier is to find another place where you can buy into the vision and mission. And that means we're parting ways, but I still see that as a positive in, in, in the person's life because you don't want anybody to feel like they're being forced to do something. And when every time I've had that difficult conversation, um, I find out through the grapevine that the next location that that individual took was perfect for them it was exactly what they needed at that point in time um and it's not like hey you're fired get out of here it's like listen let's take the next you know four to six weeks let's figure out you know you need to figure out what you want to do but let's put it on a timeline and whatever you need uh, i'll help you out with the transition Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We share similar philosophies here. So that's why I'm really excited to dive in here. And I've, I've been jotting down notes of all these different angles to go in. But the first one I want to go is this passion for culture. Right. Have you had it your whole life? Did it arise? Like, where did this come from within you? And when did you realize, like, you're kind of a master at building culture? Well, we could be, we'll go real deep. All right. This is, you know, psych, uh, my, my psychology classes, you know, 
Um, I had my father, who I loved dearly. Um, I don't know if you know the city of Boston at all, but East Boston, pretty tough area to grow up in. He was a, an Italian guy from East Boston, who graduated from East Boston High School, class of 1942. And within six months, he was in the Philippines, uh, you know, fighting uh, in Mindanao uh, against the Japanese in World War II. Uh, he was, um, you know, he was severely, you know, he was disabled, he was disabled that he'd lost a significant part of his vision, had some issues with uh, one of his kidneys, um, and, you know, came back, I mean, came back a very different person than when he went, when he was 19 years old. Um, that impacted um, his life, and ultimately impacted our lives. Uh, he was a person who, there was no discussion. I mean, he wasn't abusive by any means. He loved us to death, but there were no discussions. There was, you know, there were raised voices. There was, you know, fear that children, you know, had back in those days. Um, I don't think he was unusual for that generation, but it was something that I was never comfortable with. I never liked walking into the house, uh, being fearful that I was five minutes late for dinner. I never liked, uh, you know, getting, uh, knowing that my report card was coming and it might not be what it should be. Uh, and, you know, feeling that, okay, I'm going to get yelled at. Um, and it, it didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough that I can actually bring myself to that emotion. Uh, but then I had a mother who was, you know, she was the, the saint. She was the peacekeeper. She was the one that made sure that uh, she would sort of uh, filter things to my father type of thing. Um, I loved it when um, when my voice was heard. I loved it when uh, I felt respected, even if my opinion didn't match, you know, my, my father's opinion. Uh, and as he got older, and I got older, and I was able to speak up for myself, then that relationship became what I wanted it to become because he became softer, more understanding, and I became more vocal and able to uh, really just verbalize in a way that uh, wasn't offensive, but also in a way that wasn't fearful. Um, and I know that just feels good. And no matter where I've gone, and I've had to deal with people that would have similar management styles as my father, so to speak, if you look at him as a manager. But I also have people that had similar management styles as my mother, which was as a nurturer and a person who would listen. And ultimately, um, that's the world wherever I went. I always sought that. And then when given the opportunity to create it, it was just very natural. Um, once I knew that I was creating something, I did a lot of research. Uh, you know, servant leadership is something that, you know, you can read about. Uh, it's out there. It's not a new concept, but I'm just very comfortable with having people feel that um, they're part of a team and their voices are going to be heard regardless of what level they're at. And then I've just filled my brain with with books. Uh, you know, one of the books you've probably heard of is It's Your Ship. Um, it's mm -hmm. definitely recommended, but it's, it's really that same model. Um, I'm not comfortable with confrontational leadership, which doesn't mean I, I, I don't make difficult decisions. It just means that for my own peace of mind, I have to know that I've given everyone the opportunity to succeed because that's what I've always wanted. And I always strive for, and I've, every move I've made in my life, uh, professionally, um, has been a move closer and closer to sort of like the perfect environment. Um, so given this opportunity five years ago, it was uh, a great gift to be able to create this environment that I've been seeking really my entire life. Hmm. That's, 
powerful in many ways. And I will say from just your description, it was like, oh, wow, it seems like we had um, a similar upbringing. (laughs) No, no wonder. Uh, My father was also very dominant and there was long lineage of um, fighting and war coming through both of my grandparents too. And my mom was the nurturer, right? Gallup even released a poll, Tom, just in this last week talking about there's 60% of employees are not engaged. They're psychologically disengaged from their workforce. So besides the fact that we grew up in these environments that set the stage for what we believe in, I really feel like this is the future of workforces and the future of what we're looking at is creating a much more culturally engaged atmosphere for people. And you hinted at the end that you're in an environment, like you're getting into more and more of these perfect environments. Tell me about what you've created and like, how did you go about when you first got into your role? What were you witnessing that was going on? And where were you first trying to, you know, move the ship, guide the ship a different direction? Sure. Um, What I inherited, uh, and it was, uh, it's no, nothing disparaging toward the person that uh, I, I inherited the job from. Um, and inherit it's probably inherit is a you know, not an accurate term, but um, I was a even though I've been uh, with the Carpenters Union, I'm actually going on 37 years now. Um, I was still an outsider coming into this position. Um, I had not been, you know, I taught some part time classes and whatnot, but I, most of my time was being spent in education. And um, <clears throat> when I came to this position, I found out real quickly that the previous manage, management style was uh was authoritarian uh it wasn't collaborative it was this is how we're going to do things this is and we're doing it you know the joke was we're doing it uh now and we're doing it my way and uh you know good for he was a good friend of mine but that was uh that's just the way he operated it's my way and it's now and like okay good to know um i could not have i would not have survived in that at the in that in the organization as it was running then uh, again, just given my background and knowing that there was so much work to do, uh, and given you know the quick introduction of what we're responsible for, there was actually it was my approach was was more based on survival. If I can't get people to be on board to be invested in what we're doing, then I, I can't get my job done. I need people. So the way it started was uh, sitting down with everyone in the organization individually, and. Uh, basically having the same type of conversation I'm having with you now. This is who I am. This is how I operate. Um, if this is something you're comfortable with, then I've, I'm very excited about the future. If it's something you're not comfortable about, let's talk about it and see if we can not even find middle ground. I'm not going to become an authoritarian type leader. Um, but what I am going to expect is that you have as much passion and vision as I do in your role, regardless of what that role is. We're going to have long conversations about what the vision is. We're going to look at all the policies, procedures. Every policy and procedure was went over. We went over with a fine tooth comb. Everything from apprentice requirements in terms of what behaviors were expected, uh, right down to our communications with uh, union contractors. We looked at everything. I looked at everything, and anything that seemed to be not in line with this collaborative type of approach, we got rid of. We change the rules because at the end of the day, your policies and procedures have to match your vision. You can't just talk it. You know, it's fun to get up there and 
wave the flag and you get an ovation and this is great and then okay where does the rubber meet the road so we really went through, we went through everything uh you know it, it, examples we had of uh you know, this is it's minutiae but it's important sent the message so we have an attendance policy at all of our training centers i would add that you know we are i am in one currently in one of our 12 training centers spread out through you know out the seven states so there's a lot going on and so apprentices are required to show up by 7 a.m monday morning period the prior uh, uh rules were that if you were late on monday you know could be five minutes late then you were not allowed to stay and this was the key part and you would be rescheduled for three months later well why that is significant is that every time you would come to class and do your 40 hours based on the department of labor requirements you were one step closer to your next raise so by pushing someone off three months you were really delaying a raise uh by three months it was money in their pocket so what we decided to do because this is where you can't just be uh you can't have it so that anyone can do what they want to do so the tennis lawsuit was important but um i felt that the punishment did not match the crime so to speak because so what we did is we changed the policy so that an individual who was what we call the no show no communication just didn't show up uh there was no uh excused absence you know it was a doctor's issue or, or whatnot that person would they would get that three month uh penalty so to speak but if somebody is running late and but they have to be on time because what we're doing is we're getting ready for the the, the workforce um, we felt we still had to they couldn't get the same benefit as someone showed up on time so what we did is say listen if you're late on Monday we can't put you in class that week because we start a week off with a lot of information that we can't repeat over and over again but what we will do is we'll schedule you for this for the next week so the punishment was minimal in it basically it became a one-week punishment instead of a three-month punishment and that was just one of probably hundreds of decisions that we made in terms of what is gonna what can we do to make people feel that we're holding a strong line that we believe in but we're also not being punitive in in, in that manner you would think that would have been an easy transition um but I had folks working for me at the time that saw uh, apprentices and members people that basically were our customers they saw them as uh, as the enemy in many ways mm -hmm. and um that was uh disappointing and had for, for people that didn't change that mindset uh we ended up having the difficult conversations you know several months down the road that this is this new world is just not going to work uh with you in it you know and so now it's been five years but now uh, i believe firmly that everyone that works for us their number one uh, priority is to provide the best education possible for people who come into our organization to understand that they have a moral responsibility to do so because many not all but many of our apprentices uh come from um this is their best shot at a middle class living they're not quitting harvard or yale uh to come and uh, become a union uh, apprentice uh they're usually coming from minimum wage jobs that don't require skill um they many more and more they come from uh, families who are first generation to this country so that next level of education which you typically see in second and third generations uh is not there yet and this is uh, these are opportunities that if we don't provide that opportunity they're not going to get it elsewhere 
um, people that buy into that and believe it, but also understand that we have to make sure that our rules are fair, equitable, but enforced. Um, now we've got a winning team. Mm-hmm. And I can give other specific examples, but uh, the, the the attendance one is basically sort of that metaphorical one that uh, make sure the rules match uh, the vision, which is to be uh, clear, transparent, um, consistent, but fair. And I think that's a really great example of just like such a small piece which uh, with a major impact, like making that change. And like you said, it really went down to the morals of like, is this matching the punitive on it? As we come, even from the legal world, a lot of the leaders were authoritarian in my field. Mm -hmm. So when I was bringing on staff, the first things I had to work on was this is a different mindset when you work for me than what you're used to. Mm -hmm. And it's not about like, I'm not going to tell you constantly what to do. This is is a collaborative effort. And the other piece that I think that you mentioned that is so important here is this feeling as if the people we serve are um, opposed. And I find that fascinating. There's like this mindset across the board and even in the training that I had to go through to untrain this to who I am and look at all the little nuances. And that example you gave was such a little nuance, Tom, but it really makes a huge difference when you look at it from that perspective. So with that said, I know from doing this in a smaller organization, one, I'm going to ask you how many people are on staff, because I think the amount of people really sets the tone for what we're going to talk about. And the second thing is what you're talking about here is like you're looking at so many minute movements from staff to working with apprentices that would take time to unfold and really up level that had to have that could have felt like a huge undertaking. And how did you look at it? What was the mindset you were using there? Because even when I work and get into dropped into organizations to consult with them, this is kind of like, oh my gosh, this would be changing everything, Tom. And it kind of is. Well, <laughs> so did you follow all my questions there? Yes. Yes. I think <laughs> picked up, I think, three pathways. So number one had to do with the size. So yeah, we have, um, we also have part-time instructors, but um max payroll is about 157 people um we have if you look at 12 training centers every training center has a coordinator ultimately they manage that building um and each coordinator depending on the location where i am in millbury mass right now we have uh 16 full-time instructors um you know connecticut we have two full-time instructors uh, manchester new hampshire small that's one full-time instructor um most of our facilities have anywhere between three and five full-time instructors plus a coordinator uh plus at full-time admins um so that uh, and then we run a lot of what we call skill enhancement classes which are more for journey level carpenters but on any given day uh payroll per week would be could be up to 157 uh with a, a core uh the core is uh close to 75. Yeah, and I think that winning full time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that sets the tone of we're not talking about five people here. Right. But we're not, <laughs> not talking about Amazon either. So it's uh it's well, a good... I mean, I'm not quite Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> when right. you get there, you just let me know, Tom. I'll let I'll let you know. But yeah, so it's yeah, it's not four or five people. And uh it's there's pluses and minuses. So that was the first question. Another question had to do. I believe the second one I think had to do with uh, about coming in and what those, uh, you know, how do you work with people that 
I don't know. Re- rephrase the second yep. question. Yeah. So the second question was, I realized from doing this on the smaller scale that I was doing it, it's quite an undertaking to come in because there's so many minute areas that's going to add up to the impact that you're looking for. Right. So what was, and I work with other people that feel like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. Right. Like this is a, you know, like a mountain that I would have to go over. And it discourages a lot of people from adopting this mindset where I really think it's beneficial. So what was your mindset of walking into this organization and cultivating the change that you're looking for? Like, how did you stay like, yeah, we're going to get there. Right. Um, I'm glad you asked that question because the mindset was, my mindset was, was critical to my own sanity. Um, so this was, again, most of what I do, I mean, we're, we're on planet Earth, there are a lot of great ideas out there, so I can't take credit for anything. I just read a lot and keep, and listen a lot. But I took the, you know, the why, why not approach so much so that when you walked into my office, uh, it, was, it was a big post that I just put up there. It was why and why not. Um, and everything got questioned. Why are we doing this? Um, and in most cases, we were doing uh things that were being done just because you know it's that i would people get tired of me telling the story about the pot roast uh, the pan and the pot roast which i don't know if you've heard before but i'll quickly share it with you uh no. yeah there's a uh yeah a 12 year old uh child is uh working uh, with her mother to prepare pot roast for dinner and the mother cuts off two inches of the pot roast and puts it in a pan and the daughter asked the mom, you know, why she did it. And mom's response was, I, I don't know, you know, grandma always did it. And so they called grandma and asked grandma, why, why did you always cut the two inches off? And she, grandma said, well, that's how my mother always did it. And the great grandmother, Forsen, was still alive. And a couple of days later, they took a ride to the, the nursing home and they asked her about, why did you always cut two inches off the pot roast? And she said, because my pan was too small. And, uh, <laughs> okay, there you go. And you get it, right? You get it. It's it's fun. It's a good story. Uh, and it kind of, what, what I ended up finding out was that there were certain rules and regulations that were put in place and had to be kept in place based on the Department of Labor, based on ERISA rules, which you're very familiar with. Those were non-negotiables. But what I found that that only represented about 20% of our policies and procedures. The other 80% were internal that had just been passed along from generation to generation to generation. And everyone looked at it as gospel. And then I became, well, why are we doing this? And typically the answer was, well, this is the way we've always done it. And that would raise my blood pressure a little bit in a good positive way and i would say okay let's let's work on lowering my blood pressure let's come up if we don't know the answer um let's find out the answer and then once we find out the answer then let's evaluate whether or not we keep it if it wasn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, it wasn't coming in with a hatchet it wasn't throwing everything out and starting new because i think that's the best way to destroy culture and to destroy an organization because there's, there's always good um so that's what we did why why not and we did it for the first two and a half three years uh we don't do it anymore because we you know it's really taken four and a half five years to get to that point um and even when people you know we get a lot of complaints thrown our way whether it's a phone call or an email or a text uh and the complaints come from a variety of uh, sources sometimes it's an apprentice sometimes it's a contractor 
Sometimes it's a union representative. Sometimes it's a politician, just right down the road. And, you know, my mantra is, you know, to everyone here, including myself, is it doesn't matter if 99% of what they're saying is inaccurate or offensive. Throw that 99% away. Let's find that 1% that is accurate. Let's find that 1% that isn't offensive. And let's let's focus the conversation on that because you've taken the 99%, you haven't uh, disregarded it, but now let's have a conversation with that individual about the 1%, the one thing they may have said that can help you get better as an organization. Um, you know, another story, uh, if, you, if I may. Uh, mm-hmm. So we one of the um, complaints that we got from apprentices is that, uh, they would have to, when they showed up on Monday morning, uh, they would, there was what they called a toolbox check. And there were a list of, they had these 70 hand tools that they needed. And if they were missing a hand tool, um, they would be sent home. That's it. You're done for the week. And uh, I certainly wasn't comfortable with that. So I grabbed a cup of coffee with some apprentices. You know, instead of putting out some survey and whatnot, it's like, let's just talk. Uh, because this is a boots on the ground movement, it's, it's less boots on the ground now because I have more boots that you know what the, they know know which direction to walk in. But at the time, it was it was just me, and I needed to put the team together. Um, so anyway, the conversation was, well, what do you think would be fair and equitable for tools? Well, we shouldn't be sent home because we're missing a tool. I said, okay. Um, so what about if we have a uh, a till Tuesday model? So you come in on Monday. You're missing a six-foot wooden ruler, as an example. And if we said to you, you have to have this by tomorrow. And if you don't, then we're going to send you home because you need tools to get the job done. That would be great, Tom. That would be awesome. So we went to the the Till Tuesday rule initially, and it worked out great. Um, Then what we did is we looked at, and I asked why. Why do we ask apprentices, for example, that are taking an OSHA 30 class where they'll be it's a very chalk and talk type of class. You sit down, OSHA tells you what you got to teach. It's PowerPoint. It's almost death by PowerPoint, but we <laughs> have to find ways to make it more engaging. Why does that apprentice need to bring 70 uh, hand tools to school when they're not going to use them for the entire week? Well, you know, it's like, okay, so, well, uh, that means there is no reason for that. So it took about six months, but every instructor, you know, with the help of our coordinators, create a tool list so that if you're coming to school for this particular particular class, there, there are 12 tools that you might need. This class, you might need six. This might, you might need 20. This, you might need zero. Worked out so that in, the, in four and a half years, we have sent no one home because they were missing a tool. Occasionally, it's like, okay, it's a till Tuesday models, we like to say. Uh, and that problem is gone absolutely wow. no longer exists because it it didn't meet the need what's the need why do they need all their tools that was my question and nobody could give me a solid answer other than that's the we have to make sure that they have all their tools for what you know even when you go on a job site you don't walk on with that many tools if you're on a scaffolding job you know half a dozen hand tools you know finished job you know you might need 15 or 20 or more so we're trying to mirror what's going on in the field. Matter of fact, when you show up on a job first time and they're kind of checking you out, they're looking at your tools. And if you're bringing tools that have nothing to do with the job that you know that you are expected to do, 
that actually makes you look less professional. So at the end of the day, we ended up solving a problem and making the program better and more relevant by just asking why. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's impressive to eradicate a whole problem by asking why. I have to ask you personally, mm-hmm. do you get a lot of satisfaction going in and doing this? Because I know I do. And it's like I changed even the way I was working in my law firm because I started to realize how much people had no idea why they were doing the things they were doing. So even mm-hmm. from the legal perspective, I was like, this is Arissa. These are all the things you can you have the capacity to change, right? right? And I love it, Tom. Like I thrive on this and I'm curious because it sounds like you're just going in here. Do you personally, like, does this light you up? Oh, light you up would be a a great description. It (laughs) is um, so much to the point where I had to force myself to be unlit, so to speak. (laughs) You know, there's, uh, you know, I, I have my, you know, I can, yeah. So it lights me up probably more than it should. Um, it's uh I, I I don't want to say I wish it didn't because life is short and you want to be you want to be lit, so to speak. I know lit with different generations has different connotations, but uh for me it's about just realizing that I've been given this great gift to do something that I'd love to do. Uh, you know, the downside is I you know, I have to work at not taking things personally. And it's never about me, it's all always about the organization. You know, if I feel the organization is being attacked in an unfair way, I do take it personally. I'd rather you attack me that I can handle. But yeah, the, um, you know, the work-life balance at the end of the day for that, you know, when you're that excited about what you do, that's probably the biggest challenge. And I'll take that challenge any day of the week versus, uh, you know, um, I, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do this. There are just not enough hours in the day. There aren't enough days in the week, et cetera, et cetera. It's, uh, and for, fortunately, uh, and I learned this my first year, I don't, I don't reach out to anyone that I work with uh, on weekends uh, unless it's, you know, something that is uh, dire straits. Um, however, a lot of people I work with do communicate with me on weekends because that's just their heads are there too. Um, that's what makes this, uh, this, this job addictive is that over the past five years, I've been able to bring people into the organization that are just as passionate, uh, as I am about what they're doing. So how can, that's where the addiction comes in. That's where, you know, I've got to force myself to, uh, I put on my earbuds, I walk down, I, I get about a three minute walk to the beach, uh, in Narragansett, Rhode Island. I put on uh, Dark Side of the Moon and I crank it with my earbuds and uh, and I, I I watch the waves and that gets mm-hmm. me that gets me out of the mindset. It gives me forty two minutes of not thinking about work. But uh, at the end of the day, yes, uh, the, the passion is what keeps me going. And and you know, it, I'm so passionate about it that I really shouldn't have been sitting here talking to you. I should have been retired a year ago. Um, but you know, I committed three to five years uh, where it, uh, the five was just no way is it going to be five years. So we are just we just passed five years and there is not an end date, uh, but there will be uh, just just the reality of life, you know, but um, it's hard to step away from something that you just it's almost starting to define who I am, you know. That's pretty fabulous. I like that. And I'm glad it, I just keep checking in and you're around. So then we can oh, continue yeah. these conversations. <laughs> Still here. Still here and loving it. Yeah. 
Good, good, good. And like you said, it's like you're hitting more and more of your dream roles and the cultures that you're creating, which brings me to something that you've mentioned in a couple of different ways. I want to get, I'm going to switch pretty soon over to like outcomes and Mm -hmm. you're starting to allude to them, like how the people on your staff are just like like you, like-minded, right? They're really loving this. But first I want to talk about feedback. And when people are attacking you or your organization, that is a skill that I also feel is uh, trainable and it's something to really practice and learn about themselves. It's not something that comes naturally to us. Mm-hmm. What was that like first? How do you do this for yourself where you stay open to feedback? And then how do you train others to do this? Because that is a skill. It's taken years, needless to say. Um, nobody likes to uh, nobody likes to be attacked. Um, I've turned my mind around to really understand that if someone is attacking, it means they want to be engaged. Um, if someone is attacking, it means that they are willing to communicate with you. Uh, and if someone is attacking, it means that they have either been misinformed or maybe I've been misinformed. So at the end of that attack, and uh, there, there are less and less, you know, because obviously the longer you're around and you're dealing with the same people and they understand your communication style, uh, you know, they, t- I, you know, I have the coffee cup that was given to me that says, you know, stay calm and let Tom handle it. You know, people know that I'm not going to, I'm not going to go off. Um, and then when people know that, they know that if, if it's sort of inappropriate conversation, they know that, uh, I'll probably walk away from it, uh, you know, for the time being. We'll come back to it when cooler heads prevail. But back to the initial stuff and how I handle it. I actually, uh, have, I play this mind game that this is a gift, okay? It's an opportunity for me to either educate the individual that's upset. And that's probably mm, 75% of the time, you know, where somebody is seeing a result of a decision that I've made and that my organization has made. And, you know, to be make it specific uh, so that it's more real is apprentices um, are dropped from the program uh, based on non-performance. And that non-performance is the, the standards, the rubric for that is based on Department of Labor standards. They're very clear, they're very specific. We um, would get phone calls uh, from contractors, from union representatives, from apprentices livid that they had been dropped from the apprenticeship. Uh, what I found out is that we we were doing everything right and we educated and explained that, you know, in a phrase that I use a lot um, and I've shared that with our staff to use a lot is we would if we could, but we can't. We would if we could, but we can't. I understand that. That we will listen to you, but we cannot jeopardize um the uh, the standing of the program all right by making exceptions to the rule by not following the standards that we have signed with the federal department of labor apprenticeship program we just can't do that it's not healthy and it's not legal um you know we talk about um why those standards are important why our rules are important and that those rules tie directly to the standards now having said that and i'll use that conversation that we're on about apprentices being dropped it became clear that the 75 percent of the education piece was very effective but then there was a 25 percent where we needed to do a better job at what not at changing the standards but at communicating the standards so that anger 
turn into a collaboration. Okay, Tom, I understand what you're saying, but however, can you do a better job letting people know the rules and what's going on? This was five years ago. And the answer was absolutely. Um, do you have time? Obviously not today, but do you have time in the next couple of weeks where I can sit down with you and pick your brain? Because you're working with folks in a different way than I am. What can we do to ensure that when these standards are enforced, and again, we have no choice. We could, we would if we could, but we can't. So we can't debate that. But we can do is get better at communicating those rules, those standards, so that everyone understands it. So now we're at a point where almost everybody has bought into this and everyone understands. We now spend significant time with apprentices and an indenture presentation that lays everything out. Not just here's a piece of paper, sign it, these are the rules. Here's a here's a, a apprentice handbook that's 37 pages long. You sign it. No one reads that. We lay it out. We spend time. We took advantage of uh, Zoom because apprentices were having to lose a day's work to come to one of our training centers to go through an indenture. So COVID comes along, Zoom comes along. Now the apprentice is no longer losing that day's pay. What's happening is they are actually, we're able to do it at lunchtime where we explain everything. There might be 20 apprentices on a, on a Zoom meeting. We record those meetings and we tell the apprentices we're recording them because we say in a sort of, you know, half, uh, half joking manner, but not so much that we are recording this. So in, in two years, you come to us and you say, well, I didn't know I had to be at school, you know, the four times during the year. Well, we're documenting that. And, you know, ha, 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 big brother's watching. But it's also sending the message that this is how we have to operate to protect you and to protect our program. Uh, we have now every single week emails go out to all the business representatives so-and-so uh, if they don't come to school this week they'll be on probation if you feel that uh, you, you want to reach out to them please reach out to them because uh, this is about retention i'm sure they're valuable they're valuable to their contractors we don't want to put the contract on a position where they're losing an apprentice because that apprentice did not come to school if there are extenuating circumstances that we're not aware of and they can document it um, then we're certainly going to uh, allow that to take place because it's in the best interest of everyone. So all it was, was not shying away from the attack, embracing the attack. Come on in, yell, scream, whatever it takes, let it, let it ride, uh, keep your calm. And then as you're listening to that person, you know, occasionally taking notes on either this is going to this conversation part two is going to fall into either one of two categories uh, me educating you in a very respectful manner uh and it, it was it's always received uh you know in a way that uh really the end result is oh i never knew that okay and then the other category which is what can i do what can we do to better educate people that are dealing with this on a daily basis I, it's just been magical it really has uh people that uh we that we started off on a rough road we are i mean we've become friends because they they have passion too and that's the thing when somebody is angry that shows passion so you don't want to deny that feeling uh you want to understand it and when you can understand their frustration and if there's something that i can do to uh 
make that better for them, make it so that we're helping them solve their problem. And in many cases, it's just being better at communicating. You know, it's a, it's a win. It's a win for everybody. A couple of reflections for you, as I always say, like if somebody's coming at you, especially if they're angry, you're mm-hmm. right, that's passion. But I always say like, pull the rope and keep pulling it to get it all out and then yeah. have the conversation about what to do. A lot yeah. of people like put up a defense mechanism and they try to be like, well, this is, and I was like, don't do it. Just pull the rope and let it completely come out and watch it simmer down on yes. the person. And then, like you said, set up another time, do it another time. So I think brilliant. I'm glad you brought that up because that's so key in a lot of the work I do. The second piece is, you know, between you and me and everyone that's listening, one of the reasons I got out of the law is I started to notice training programs. I was like, I don't feel you're doing a great job of really over communicating and being clear on communication of standards and policies. People would be handing them to, like like you said, hundreds of pages. Read this, know it. And I was like, they're not reading it. They're not knowing it. It takes time to communicate this. And here I was on the other end chasing after people or when the conflict came up, it was sent to my desk and not dealt with very Mm -hmm. much inside. And it was just like, man, there's so much in the legal industry of fighting. And like, it's a fight goes up. I don't know what to do with it. Passed on to legal counsel where I was like, this is really something that should be dealt with, you know, steps ahead. Like you can actually change this as a culture and change it into collaboration. So I'm so glad that you're bringing that up. Because for me, I was like, I've got to do something else to get in front of this. I can't continue in this position where I was. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. Um, I, would, I would love to say that we um, you know, don't have people that uh, you know, have come after us you know, with, uh, with attorneys and whatnot. But you know, when all is said and done, uh, what has been very helpful for us and even for the individual is that we um, we communicate and we try to over communicate these days, but we also document what we communicate because that's the that's the legal side. Just because you said it, uh, if there's no documentation that you did it, then that that puts the training fund in a difficult position because you know at the end of the day, and you've worked with training funds, uh, the primary responsibility is to protect the fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the way you protect the fund is by making it a place that is uh, transparent, does things right, definitely does things consistently, because you know that uh, you run into problems when you have rules for one person uh, that don't apply to other people, and that word spreads around, and now you've got, uh, at the very least, if you're lucky, just some disgruntled people, but if you're not so lucky, you've got an attorney calling you, why did this apprentice get dropped for doing the same thing that that apprentice did and that individual didn't get dropped um or, or it's, it's the same way with employees and whatnot so yeah it's really it's kind of simple but it's not easy i guess that's the yeah yeah right yeah yeah and i'll leave those stories of the handbag of atrocities that i've dealt with from mm-hmm. being missed like people being treated differently for another day tom because that would be um that would probably be over beverages at night <laughs> Oh, there we go. I don't blame it. I will tell you, and I'm glad. Yes, maybe the beverages at lunch. You know, they're pretty. Yeah. They're pretty. Uh, definitely, they take a lot out of you. They, they yeah. But they, even that shouldn't move you away from your mission. Everything can be a learning opportunity. Everything, and even as painful learning opportunities. And and, and I think, you know, it, it, again, in different points in life, you have to. Um, you know, you got a choice. I mean, bad stuff's going to come at you. I don't care what you do. I don't care. I could do everything perfect, which will never happen. But 
even if I had that perfect day, you know, bad stuff's still going to come at you, things that you have no control over. And you can either, either let it eat you up alive or say, okay, you know, that old adage, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, uh, you know, so that's true. what we're going to do. But the, the, the consistent treatment, uh, and I'm glad you brought that up because I did not bring that up, uh, have not brought it up yet. That is something that we've become so good at. And it's been something we've had to fight for because everyone seems to be looking for a break. And that's where the I would if I could, but I can't conversation comes in. And then explaining that if we do this, okay, um, then we are putting ourselves in a position that we can't defend, period. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's a hard no. We cannot. But we also have other pathways that, so for example, when somebody leaves is, is asked or told to leave an apprenticeship program, there are still other pathways. You know, you can, in three months, you can reapply to the program. Take those three months to maybe fix the things in your life that are preventing you from going to work, that are preventing you from coming to class when you're supposed to come to class, and then reapply. You know, it very rarely is is goodbye, goodbye. It's usually, you know, see you. For now, it's goodbye. Hopefully, you kind of regroup and, and get in a position where you're in a, a, a much better position to succeed. You know, we had a graduation about a month ago here in Melbury, you know, 300 plus people in the auditorium. And I would say eh, probably 10% of those folks that graduated were uh, second chancers. You know, their first time around didn't work. Uh, we certainly didn't close the doors on them. I wasn't, you know, they're, they basically didn't follow the rules. We were forced to, you know, enforce the rules. It wasn't any like anything, that a behavior that you wouldn't bring a person back for. And those were the people who were the most excited. Those were the people with the, the biggest high fives and the biggest hugs, like, yeah, I did it, I did it. It's like, yeah, you did it, this is great. We saw you succeed, you know? Uh, and then you throw a jab, it's like, yeah, well, it's about time, you know, it only took you seven years, but, and then we have some fun with that because at the end of the day, we try to end with a laugh, but, you know, again, it all comes down to transparency and consistency and passion and caring, you know, yeah. some basic emotions and, and strategies. So let's let me switch on you and talk about outcomes of what you've sure. seen. So you did a lot in the front end of this podcast talking about the journey you took with your team to really build this type of culture. And now you're um, kind of soaring, let's say, like you've got it there and now it's just about keeping it. What right. has it been like? Like, what's your culture? Like, what are some of the biggest outcomes that you could share of like how this really revolutionizes mm -hmm the industry, the organization, what's your perspective on that, Tom? Okay. Well, I would think, uh, you know, out of the gate, uh, retention numbers have uh, really uh, gone uh, to a level where other people from other training funds uh, who I'm friends with uh, are sitting down with us and asking us what approach we're taking. Why are you getting those numbers? And, and hard numbers, uh, five, six years ago, we we're looking at about a 52% retention rate which is, is kind of industry standard in a lot of apprenticeships. And now we're in the low 80s, um, which is... Uh, we, we seem oh, wow, to be, nice. Well, we seem to be stuck at that 82%. Uh, but I think I'll take it. You know, I mean, I, you always want to do better. We did see a bit of a drop off. Uh, we were down into the mid 70s uh, during COVID. Um, I, I think everyone was off during COVID, but uh, we're starting to pump them up again. Uh, and we're like we're at 81 right now based on the last cohort that we uh, that we sampled. 
but that's just that's the end of the day. That's the result of uh, an intake process that's changed significantly. Uh, our intake process starts. If you don't mind, I can just run through the the, the nuts and bolts of it. You, you, can, you know, shut me down at any point. But you know, we believe information is really important. Transparency. So we have information sessions uh, every month, the first Monday of every month, at all of our training centers. Uh, for consistency reasons, we uh, internally created a, uh, a video that is played at all the training centers, so everyone hears the same message. And then the coordinators and, and instructors, uh, and we're actually using some you know uh, younger people that don't work for us other than at the information sessions, uh, they can answer questions from the group. Uh, that information session, uh, when you look at the hard numbers, uh, if you take 100% of that group that show up to all these information sessions, it typically is probably 350, 360 people per month uh, spread out through 12 different locations. At the end of the day, about 34% of those will end up uh, working on our job sites. Uh, that's a healthy number. We don't want 100% of those people to come in because they don't even know what they're getting into. So the first round of filters, so to speak, is the information session. Uh, we then interview everyone that fills out an application. Uh, a certain number of people don't fill out the application. That means they're not uh, interested enough to do that. Um, we've made it easy to fill it out. It's uh, you can use it. You know, you can upload it with your any device that you have. You know, whether you know, obviously, you have to be a high school graduate. You have to show that you graduated from high school, and you have to have an ID. And then you fill out whatever you need to fill out to make yourself look as best as you can uh, in that uh, application. However, having said that, everyone gets interviewed. Uh, we don't pick and choose. Everyone gets an interview. Uh, in some cases, it could take three or four months, you know, depending on the needs of the local economy. But they, people get interviewed. And what we're looking for, uh, and I may have, we may have talked about this in the past, but we use a behavioral event interview protocols where bottom line is, you know, your past performance is the best predictor of future outcomes. What have you done in the past? Uh, you know, I, I previous interview questions you know, prior to this new approach, which is about been in place about five and a half, six years. Uh, you know, do you mind working at heights? No, I, I'll work at heights. Do you mind working? It's cold. You know, it's really cold out there. I hope you don't mind working in the cold. Well, that's not an interview question. That's basically giving people the the answers to the, to the test. We want to know what you've done in the past. And it doesn't have to be construction-based. We're looking for a history of physicality. Whatever that might look like, it, uh, we find people coming from the culinary industry do very well in construction. They they have crazy hours. It's really hot in, in the in the summertime when they're working in kitchens and they're on their feet all day. They have to work in high pressure. So we're we're looking for that type of history of physicality, teamwork, and we'll always ask somebody to tell us about a time where they were in a situation that was very difficult. Whether it would have maybe it was as a manager or maybe it was as someone being managed. And to tell us exactly what that looked like, tell us the story. I'm, I'm watching a mini series, and I'm, I want you to tell me what the problem was, how you dealt with it, and what the final solution uh, was. And it's a conversation like we're having now. You can learn a lot about a person and how they're going to uh, succeed or fail in our organization, actually in our industry, uh, if they're going to be able to make it, cut it. We make sure the people that are doing the interviews um that there are a minimum of two people actually doing the interviews those two people are uh are diverse uh so that you know this we obviously we recruit uh the best and the brightest and we are colorblind and gender blind but you can't say you're colorblind and gender blind if the people that are doing the interviews 
don't look like you know uh, that don't look like the people you're interviewing so our interview team is uh diverse but uh because it's it's really it's not like it's the right thing to do it's the most effective thing to do because you have to allow people to open up with their stories um and as a result of that the people that we're bringing in based on the the filtering process have a better chance of succeeding our numbers from years ago first year still no it's it's lower numbers but your first year is the highest dropout rate so that became our focus and then by lowering that by be, making sure that we're transparent and that we have uh, people that work for this organization that truly want to see the apprentices succeed um those numbers have dropped and once you're past your first year second third fourth year you know they're 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 with us they're sticking around mm -hmm. um so that that's been um that goes to everything that goes to culture that goes to how you interview people that goes to how you evaluate people that goes to the training the people that are doing the interviews and then evaluating the people who do the interviews because what we do is we look at you know interviewers and if an interviewer is showing that men the people that they're bringing in are actually dropping out of the program higher than the, the rates of other interviewers uh then we have to find out why you know you're not you're not following something's amiss here uh and we either fix it or move on to the and just focus on the interviewers that are having the best success in terms of uh retention numbers um so it's very it's thought out it's very thoughtful uh it is demanding but it's demanding in a way that this is about survival this is about giving our contractors the best people uh that they're going to need to grow their or continue with their you know with their companies and everyone knows the demo, the numbers uh of you know what is going on in this country when it comes to the trade so uh you know people aren't lining up you know and that's a whole other topic about how we recruit and what that has changed what that looks like and how that's changed over the past you know three or four years but mm -hmm. uh you know that's that's one that's probably that's that's a real hard fact of recruitment and retention so now we're actually down to really breaking the numbers down to which areas have the highest retention uh numbers oh uh, fascinating right because it, you can't just look at with 124,000 square miles you can't just look at it uh as okay 82 percent retention because you have some areas that are high some that are lower um I don't eat at McDonald's I haven't eaten there since high school but what I, I but I imagine when they look at stores some stores perform better than others so when we look at training centers which are also tied directly into the drop site um culture uh which we are involved with uh with a very large contractor who understands that if they're going to keep uh the next the current generation engaged that diversity equity inclusion we're hearing a lot about DEI but at the end of the day we're doing something about it when it comes to training and whatnot but there are also job site cultures that we have you know our impact on those job sites will be felt you know probably 10 years from now they're not going to be it's not going to be felt today but by providing information and data to people that are part of our organization but not part of training we can show that okay um you know retention in this area is you know 87 percent retention in this area is you know 68 percent what why what's the difference we're using the same model you know the training is identical the people we hire uh, you know see things the same way what what's what's different 
and um, and then we break that down. Sometimes it's the intake process, which we um, think is identical, has gone off the track a little. We got to bring it back on the track. Sometimes it's just you know local cultures, uh, long histories of jobs being uh, you know run a certain way. Um, you know, you could say that about any company in America, I guess. So, um, you know, a lot of that, it's, it's not, it's nonstop. And the, the, the biggest challenge with an apprenticeship is that we are constantly recycling. In other words, we get an apprentice, they do a great job four years later, they're gone. We get, there's no, they get to go on to the world of being a journey level carpenter, but we're, it's, it's like being a high school teacher. You know, you just get those kids to the point where everything's perfect and then it's you know first week in september and the freshmen walk in and you're like oh, here we go again all right let's go we start all over again you know the last four years it's it's yesterday's news so uh this is no different it's it's it, you can never can never rest on any laurels ever mm, mm, mm. i love this continuous improvement over and over you mentioned metrics you're looking at data right. qualitative and quantitative i to look at all of this yeah. love it love it so being respectful of your time tom i have a few more at least one more question for you what is your biggest piece of advice for somebody looking to do this looking to improve this looking to like really be excellent in this what's your sure. what's advice from you um well i i would uh I would say that, and this might be deeper than the audience wants to hear, but you got to get your own life together. You've got to, you can't, um, you've got to be uh, very uh, confident in who you are. You have to be happy. You have to be at peace. You have to have relationships that are supportive. Um, you have to, what you're asking other people to do with this organization, which is culture of respect. Uh, you have to live that uh, in your daily life, whether it's with uh, family, friends, right down the line, um, knowing that it's uh, a difficult task because everyone has challenges. But if you don't have the psychological makeup uh, to be able to take, uh, you know, aggressive criticism, especially when you're starting something new, uh, if you can't come to work uh, as a as a as a healthy spirit because you're dealing with whatever you may be dealing with, you know, are you dealing with your own addictions, whatever they might be, uh, uh, then you're not going to succeed at this job. You, you are not. Uh, we've seen this in the political arena. You know, who are your best leaders? Your best leaders are people that uh, are very um, at peace with who they are uh, in, in life. That's where you have to start. You have to start with yourself. I, 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 you have to. Because if you if you can't do that, then how can you expect others to? How can you be a role model to others? Because at the end of the day, you have to be able to model what you're asking people to do. You you have to. You can't just talk about it. You can't just make speeches. You can't just write policies and then live your life the way you want it to be lived. Or you want others to live it. If you're not doing that, you have to, you have to be a, a the type of leader that walks um, the talk and not just at work. You know, but in in their daily lives, if without that, the struggle is going to be um, probably more than most people can handle. I've seen it in education. I've seen it with uh, you know principals and superintendents who are struggling in their own personal lives. And if you don't think that impacts their uh, has an impact on their effectiveness as a leader, well, then your your head's in the sand. It does impact them as a leader. It impacts them as a mentor. 
So I would say the number one piece of advice uh, is get your own house in order so that when you have to make the tough decisions and deal with things that can be very emotional, that you're going to be able to handle it. And you know, and, and you know it's going, not going to um, uh, impact negatively your world because your world is 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 solid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that is great advice, like the best advice you could have given. I guess I have the same belief. So, mm-hmm. and I think when I was working with leaders, when I first set out to work with like entrepreneurs with teams and stuff like that, Tom, and even leaders, I don't think I realized how a mess some personal lives were. And I was like, until we can really get the personal life to feel safe, secure, good, where you have space Mm -hmm. to actually take yourself into the work environment, it's same, same. Like it's just one really influences the other very deeply. I agree with you 100%. I think that's the best advice um, that you could have given. Well, thank you, Tom. It is always such a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for bringing your insight to this podcast and sharing it with me today. Great seeing you. Great talking with you. And I'm sure this won't be the last time. Mm, I hope not. Okay, great. All right.